We are in the uh, midst of a series of messages uh, found in the book of James uh, that focus our attention on how to grow into spiritually mature Christians. If if you'll recall, um, we've learned that God's goal for all of his children is that we grow up, that we become mature in our faith, that we become conformed into the image of his son, that we become more like Jesus, as uh, Mike just sang, that every day we become more and more like him. Becoming a Christian occurs in a moment in time. It occurs in a moment when a man or a woman recognizes what God says, that we are sinners, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are righteous, that we all fall short of God's standard. Becoming a Christian occurs in that moment in time where we recognize that we in no way, shape, or form are worthy to be in the presence of God after this life, and uh, we begin to realize that we fall short, as God says. See, becoming a Christian means that we recognize that we are, as God calls us, that we're sinners separated from him for all of eternity, unless something drastic happens in our life. Becoming a Christian occurs in the moment in time when a man or a woman recognizes that he's a sinner, that he recognizes and understands that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross so that he would suffer a death on our behalf and that our sins would be forgiven because of what he does. Becoming a Christian occurs when we realize that Jesus died for us in our place, that he rose again three days later and with, with innumerable evidences demonstrated that he is who he claims to be, God in human flesh, able to conquer both sin and also offer eternal life as well as physical life. See, becoming a Christian occurs in that moment when a person throws up their hands and says, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I believe what you say, and I believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. See, many of us in our culture are confused as to what, be, what becoming a Christian is all about. We mistakenly believe that if we go to church that we're Christians, if we read our Bibles we're Christians, if we're in some kind of club or do good works, that that must make us a Christian. If we simply believe in God, that somehow or another that makes us a Christian. But the Bible clearly tells us what it takes to have a right relationship with God. And it is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and on Him alone. See, becoming a Christian occurs in that moment in time, but becoming more like Jesus takes a lifetime. Because the moment we become a Christian, a child of God, is when we believe in his name. The Bible says, as, uh, for as many as believe in him, speaking of Jesus, that, that he gives us the right to be called children of God to those that believe in his name, that we're a child of God at that moment. But to become like Jesus is something that occurs throughout a person's lifetime. And we're all work in progress. The Bible says, and remember this, that he, speaking of God, who began this good work in us, when did he begin it? The day that you gave your heart to Christ. The day that you believed in Jesus Christ. That he, God, who began that good work, the moment that you believed in Jesus Christ, will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, or when Jesus returns, or until he calls us home. And so really, this is a matter of, it's all God's work. All that a person does, all that a human being can ever do is just recognize what God has to say, submit to the authority and will of God, throw up their hands and say, Lord, forgive me, I can't help myself, I can't save myself, please do what you promised to do. And God says at that moment that Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imparted to us. Now what gets confusing is, is that that's where it all starts, but that's not where God wants it to end. So many of us are content with just saying, well, I gave my life to Christ, I know that I'm a Christian, I know that I'm forgiven, and I'm pretty comfortable just leaving it at that. But God isn't comfortable with that. He wants us to grow in our faith. He wants us to become more like Jesus. He wants to conform us into the image of his Son. He wants us to be perfect, which is another word for mature, complete and lacking in nothing. That is God's goal for each one of us. And if your goal is anything less than that, I'm just here to tell you, you need to change your goal. Because your goal falls short of God's goal, and we need to be on the same page as God, and God's goal is for us to become more like Jesus every day. And so the question you've got to ask yourself is, where are you in this process? Are you going in the right direction, or are you stagnant? And if you're stagnant, really, you're going in the opposite direction of where God wants us to go. You know, as we progress through the series, we've uh, been continually reminded that there is a huge difference between how an immature child and a more responsible adult think, act, and sees life. For example, I was told a story of a farm boy who who accidentally knocked over uh, or accidentally overturned the wagon that he had a load of corn and it was on his way to a market to sell it. And uh, the neighbor across the the, the field heard this commotion and he saw what happened and he yelled over to him, Hey, Willie, he goes, come on over here and have some lunch with us. 
And uh, after we have some lunch, you'll feel better about what happened. I'll come over and we'll load the wagon back up. And Willie yelled across to him and said, no, I don't think my pa would like that. I don't think I should do that. And he yelled and said, come on, Willie, have some lunch. You'll feel better about it and don't worry about it. We'll get it taken care of. He said, well, I don't think my pa's going to like that. And the neighbor insisted, so finally Willie says, okay, fine. He goes over and they have this great lunch together. And as at the end of the lunch, the farmer who had invited him over said, Willie, don't you feel better about yourself now? He goes, it's going to be okay. And Willie said, well, yeah, I, I kind of feel better, but I think Pa's going to be really upset with me. He goes, no, let's just go over and I'll help you. So they go over and, they, and, and as they're walking over, he goes, you know, we'll go ahead and load all the corn back in the wagon, get it turned up, and you'll get it to market and everything will be fine. He goes, by the way, where is your Pa today? He goes, well, he's trapped under the wagon. You know, have you ever been in that position in life where it's like you're not really sure what to do? You know, you're not sure what should I take care of first, what should my priorities be? You're looking around, you're asking questions, you're asking for counsel, you're seeking the, the advice of other people, and it's like, what should I do first? And sometimes we get really confused as to what our priorities are. And a lot of times it's because we're looking for people to tell us what we already want to hear because that's what we want to do. And so if we can get enough people to tell us what we want to hear, then we can just go ahead and do what we want to do, somehow rationalizing or justifying that that's, all, that's what we wanted to do anyway. And as we look at this, we need to recognize that sometimes some of us get into trouble because we turn to the wrong people and we turn to the wrong advice and direction in life, and we begin to pursue that. Every one of us need what James now is going to talk about in the third chapter. If you've got your Bibles, look at James chapter 3. As we look at a subject that's addressed in this particular passage, in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, we learn in this process that we're going through that we are to be growing through heavenly wisdom. Growing through heavenly wisdom. That's the subject, that's the focus of our attention as we look at this particular passage. And we look at what this is that God refers to as this whole idea or topic or subject of wisdom. What is he talking about? And he asked that question. He says, who among you, in verse 13 of chapter 3, says, who among you is wise and understanding? He says, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom, this wisdom, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom was a very important thing to Jewish people at the time of James's letter. They realized, and rightly so, that if it, if it, was not, it wasn't enough to have knowledge, that you also had to have wisdom. Because what wisdom is, is wisdom is the proper use of the knowledge that you have. They knew from the book of Proverbs, as an example, that they were to acquire wisdom. Proverbs 4, it was a command of God to God's people that you acquire wisdom. It was a command. Meaning this, that the, the, to acquire wisdom starts with a very basic premise, and that is that you must want the wisdom that God has to offer. We acquire it by wanting it first in our heart and then pursuing it with all of our energy. We want to know the wisdom that God wants to give us so that we can rightly apply the knowledge that we are, are gaining as we go through the Word of God. You see, knowledge without proper wisdom is a disastrous thing. And I will illustrate that as we go through it. It's a very dangerous thing. They recognized and understood that wisdom provided many benefits. That wisdom would watch out for you all of your life. That wisdom would exalt you and honor you, give guidance throughout one's life, give life, health, and integrity. And you can find all of that in Proverbs chapter 4. Wisdom was to be sought with more vigor than silver and gold. Probably the best example as I was studying, I was reminded immediately of the example of King Solomon. Solomon was, was asked by God, if you can imagine, if you've ever been in a position where, you know, you, you would be in a situation where God says, hey, what is it that I can do for you? Could you imagine to have God say to you, what is it, what is it that you want? What can I do for you? How can I help you? And Solomon, thinking it over, said, God, 
I want a wise and discerning heart so that I can know the difference between good and evil, so that I can understand the difference between right and wrong, doing what is right in your sight versus doing what is wrong in your sight, and being able to discern and recognize the subtle deception that's out there that wants us to do what's wrong before God instead of doing that which is right before God. And so Solomon said, God, that's what I want. And God was so pleased that Solomon wanted godly or heavenly wisdom that this is God's response to him. In 1 Kings 3, 9 through 13, God says this. He says, Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall like you arise after you. And I have also given what you have not asked, both riches and honor. Isn't that fascinating? God was so pleased that Solomon didn't come to him with exactly the same thing that many of us would come to him, and that is a list of things that we want. Well, let's see. First of all, I want a really good retirement account. Then I want, you know, I want a new house, and I want a new car, and I want all this stuff, and I want these things. And you know what? And, and, and what God said is when you have your priorities right, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these other things that we worry about in life will be added unto you. They take care of themselves. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What? They shall be satisfied or they shall be content. Many of us are very discontent in life. Many of us think if we accomplish one more thing, we buy one more thing, we do one more thing, we achieve one more thing, if this, that, and the other thing happens, then finally this missing thing in my life, I'm going to have peace and joy and contentment and then I'll be satisfied. And Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2, I tried all those things. Don't waste your time. Because at the end of all of it, what I discovered is this. Who can enjoy any of these things without a right relationship with the God who created them? See, when we put God first, that's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And everything that God wants us to understand are summarized in those two commandments. And the reason for it is this. When God comes first and we pursue him vigorously, then everything else falls into place. Commit your desires to God and what? And he will give you the desires of your heart. It's a priority system. And see, understanding this is what makes us want to pursue heavenly or godly wisdom more than anything else in life. Is that your pursuit as you listen to me today? Or are you confused and subtly deceived that your pursuit is in other directions? I need to get a better job, I need to make more money, I need to buy this, I need to buy that, I need to buy another thing, I need to get a new relationship, I need to do this, that. All these things that we think are going to take care of our innermost need for contentment and peace with God. And the answer is, you are deceived and you are acting according to the wisdom of this world and not according to the wisdom of God. And we're going to see very clearly the contrast between the two. But the question for you is this, what exactly is wisdom? Is it merely knowledge that we gain from experience? For example, someone gave me a list of things that's titled Words of Wisdom from Children. Number one, Alicia realizes, age 13, when you get a bad grade in school, show it to your mom when she's on the phone. <laughs> Words of Wisdom from Children. Joel 10 says, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. <laughs> Good advice. Lauren, age nine, says, a felt-tip marker does not make for good lipstick. <laughs> if you want a kitten, start out by asking for a horse. <laughs> Amir, age nine, discovered you cannot hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. Here's another child, age nine, says, you know, I learned you should never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. <laughs> For those who grew up on the farm, you could probably identify with Nerona, age 13, who said, you know what, don't ever squat down with spurs on. <laughs> and Robert, who must have been a neighbor, has this advice or this counsel, never pee on an electric fence. That's good counsel right there. Patrick, age 10, never trust a dog to watch your food. 
Tanya, age 11, when your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. <laughs> and Michael, age 14, made this discovery. When your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid? Don't answer him. Now the question for you is, does that reflect the wisdom that God wants us to understand? Because we have this confusion about wisdom. Oh, here, here's, or is wisdom something philosophical, like this particular overhead that I've got? And reread this. A simple word of wisdom for the day. If a man speaks in the forest and there is no woman to hear, is he still wrong? And the answer is, ladies, yes, of course. See, it's just one of those things. So when we're talking about wisdom, obviously we need to clarify what it is that God addresses in James chapter 3. If you recall, James chapter 3, James was dealing with those who had a desire to be teachers, who wanted to say things. But you know what? Words sometimes aren't enough. Because not only should we say things, but we should have something to say. And that's what James is referring to as God talks about heavenly wisdom. See, heavenly wisdom is the ability to take knowledge that God gives us and to be able to apply it to our everyday life. There are many of us who are full of knowledge. But we do not have the heavenly wisdom or godly wisdom that we should have in order to take what we're learning here and carry it with us into our everyday life. That's why we've been encouraged through the study to not just be hearers of the word only, but to be doers. Not to come and soak up more stuff and to take more notes and to make outlines in our Bible, then to close our Bibles, go back to work tomorrow, back to school, and then just go about living our life as we've always lived it, unchanged by the truth and the conviction of the Word of God. See, to have this knowledge and not have godly wisdom is nothing more than frustration on the part of a believer. Because we don't know what to do with it. I got it, but I don't know what to do with it. If any man lacks wisdom, what? Let him ask of God, who gives generously and above reproach. We need to know how to apply it in our everyday life. You see, it's not enough just to know. We also have to know how to apply. See, we've all been at church, or we've all been in a Bible study, or we've all been somewhere where we can hear a person, a pastor, or a teacher, or whatever, and they can tell us a lot of good stuff. But unless we can also be challenged on how to apply it, there's something missing with that teaching. It's not enough. We've got to be able to take it out and then use it. So much of what we learn is academic only. And we don't understand that it's for the purpose of putting it into application. Growing through heavenly wisdom will help us to understand that. This knowledge without wisdom is what is being addressed in this passage that we're going to look at. And what James does is he contrasts true wisdom from false wisdom, and he does it in three different ways. And the first way that we're going to look at is a contrast that we see, a contrast in what we'll call the contrast in origins. Where does this wisdom come from? The contrast in origin is going to be laid out before us. You know, true wisdom, we learn, comes from above. False wisdom comes from below. And we'll identify what exactly that means. In other words, there is a heavenly wisdom, and there is what would be called an earthly wisdom. You know, the Bible is a book that continually ch challenges us by giving us contrast, and rightly so, because we need to know and understand it's not this way, but it's this way. It's not the way that you think, it's the way that God says. And this is the way we're doing it, and now God says, no, we do it this way. And so that process of becoming a mature Christian, coming, going from a child of God to, an, to a spiritually mature believer, takes place by understanding the difference between how we used to do things and now how we're going to do things. So the contrast is there. And all throughout the Bible, we see that there's a contrast between earthly things and heavenly things, a contrast between flesh and the spirit. That's why Jesus warned that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And so as we look at that, we see that there's a struggle that's taking place, and that struggle is always going on, a struggle between that which is sensual and that which is spiritual. When you have a, a moment sometime during this week, read Galatians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 4, and there's a contrast in how a believer should live versus how the rest of the world lives. How maybe you used to live and the things you used to do, now how you're going to be doing things now that you've given your life to Christ, you've trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, you're a child of God, you're a new creature, old things pass away, all new uh, things become new, and this is the way God wants you to live now, laying aside all of those old ways of living, now I'm going to do the way God wants me to do it. There's a contrast that's continually there, and we need to recognize what it is. There's a contrast that's really important as it, as it uh, lends to our discussion today, and that is there's a huge contrast between man's reasoning and God's revealing. The reasoning, reasoning of man versus the revelation of God, there is a huge difference between the two. It's 180 degrees apart. And nowhere ever will it ever intersect. And we need to realize that. And there is a huge difference between wisdom that, uh, that has as its origin man and that which is from God. Listen to me very carefully. Whatever is not revealed from God is destined to fail, no matter how successful it may seem at the time. You follow that? Whatever is not revealed from God is destined to fail, regardless of how successful it may seem at that moment in time. We see that often, especially in the financial world where at the moment in time it looks like this is a good idea financially and people are being successful doing it and therefore why shouldn't we do it? And the answer is very simple because it has to do with the reasoning of man versus the revelation of God and God gives us spiritual principles in which we are to conduct ourselves in the areas of finance that even though we, see, we look around us and see people that look like they're being successful in doing it, it doesn't make any difference because God has revealed how we should live our life in that area. There are many of us who seemingly are successful at a moment in time doing that which God has revealed to be opposite of what we should be doing. We scratch our head and go, well, wait a minute, God. I thought you said, how can they be succeeding if what they're doing is in violation of what you said? Therefore, I don't trust you anymore. I trust what? What I see. We've already learned that we're not to be people who walk by sight, but what? But by faith. We're not to be people who walk by sight, but by faith, because our sight is deceptive. We see people around us who seemingly are successful, violating the principles of God. And the word of God is very clear and is revealed to us. And we've got a choice whether we're going to trust what we see or trust what God says. And that is the continual dilemma on our path to growing spiritually. We need to recognize it. How can I make such a bold statement? The reason is very simple. Because God has given us his word, and his word is trustworthy, and his word is reliable. God has given us examples for our benefit that we can learn from the mistakes of others who walk by sight instead of by faith. He's also given us examples of those who've walked by faith and not by sight. Those who obeyed God in spite of the consequences were considered to be faithful people. According to the word of God, Hebrews 11 is filled with them. Those who walked by faith, not by sight, they trusted the word of God, and they did what, they, what he said to do in spite of the consequences of that obedience. We need to be people that are just like that. We need to recognize, for example, some examples of the reasoning of man that failed miserably in the sight of God. The Bible contains many of those examples of man's wisdom. How about the Tower of Babel? It seemed like a great idea to the reasoning of man. They reasoned to themselves, why can't we do this? We have the ability to do it, so we should just go ahead and do it. And God told them specifically not to do it. And as a result, what? God confused them. That's where we get babbling idiot. You know, that all comes from the Tower of Babel, where God confused language because man was bent on doing that was evil before God, and the increased knowledge that they had without proper wisdom would lead to nothing but rebellion and more rebellion in the sight of God. It, man reasoned, we can do it, why shouldn't we do it? Why well, shouldn't do it? Because God said not to do it, regardless of whether you can do it or not. That's not the point. The reasoning of man. Abraham reasoned, well, there's a drought in Canaan, so I guess I should go to Egypt. Not a good idea. God told him not to go there, but he reasoned, well, well, gee, God, you want to meet our needs, so, I mean, that's where I got to go, that's what I'm going to do. 
He also reasoned, hey, I think it'd be a good thing if you pretend not to be my wife, okay? And uh, we can go ahead and get out of here because if you're my wife, this guy doesn't want to have sex with you because he's not going to violate that relationship. So the only way he's going to get around it is he's going to kill me. And so if he's going to kill me, I think the next best step would be this. Let's just pretend we're not married. He reasoned that. That wasn't a good idea. See, we look at these things and go, oh, and on, on top of that, Abraham, a great man of faith, also reasoned that if I'm going to have a child, gee, Sarah, you can't put out for me, so why don't we use Hagar and we'll take care of it ourselves? Man reasons, but God reveals, and the conflict continues to go on. Look at the disciples. They thought it was wise to dismiss the crowd and send them on their way. Say, hey, you, can't, you need food? Hey, go get your own food. Jesus said, wait a minute. Let me just reveal what I can do. And he took some fish and some loaves, and he multiplied it, and he fed the multitudes of people. But the disciples' reasoning, man's wisdom was what? Send them away. We can't deal with this. God says, wait a minute. I got something I want to show you. The Roman experts in Acts 27 said, you know what, let's go ahead and get on the ship and let's, let's set sail. And Paul said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. They said, no, let's go. We checked it out. We checked out the maps. We checked out the stars. Everything looks good, they reasoned. They got on the boat and it shipwrecked. The reasoning of man versus the revelation of God. In every case that was mentioned, man had knowledge but not the needed wisdom to make the proper application of what they had learned. See, what is the origin of man's wisdom? Notice in James chapter 3. In James 3, we find the origin of man's wisdom in verse 15. He says, this wisdom is not that which comes from above. Notice what he says. It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. In other words, it comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. Man's wisdom comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need to recognize and understand it. There is a wisdom of the world, and it should, we shouldn't confuse the world's knowledge and the world's wisdom. Did you hear that? Never confuse the world's knowledge and the world's wisdom. We've all benefited from the knowledge of this world in many different ways. But never confuse that for what God calls heavenly wisdom. Never confuse knowledge for wisdom. You know, I can't help but think of the concerns that we have in our world over things like nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare and weapons, and the moral and ethical debates that are caused by so-called medical and technological advancements. All these things that we look at, it's interesting as I, as, I, as I realize what exactly it is that God's saying, that man has tremendous knowledge, but we have very limited wisdom on what to do with that knowledge. In fact, uh, there was, it was a David, uh, Henry David Thoreau who said, uh, he warned that we had improved means to an unimproved end, which is very, very, very profound. We have an improved means to unimproved ends. I was reminded of a man in Boston who was entertaining a famous Chinese philosopher and scholar. He met his oriental friend at the train station, rushed him to the subway. As they ran through the subway station, the host panted to his guest, if we can run and catch this, this train, this next train, we'll save three minutes. To which his oriental philosopher stopped, looked at him and said, and what significant thing do you plan on doing with those three minutes? But isn't that the way we are? We're in a hurry to do what? We lack godly or heavenly wisdom. We don't know what to do with the knowledge that we have. It's amazing to me. I saw recently the following. It reminded me of man's pursuit for knowledge and not really knowing what to expect once we get there. Says the graduate with a bachelor of science degree asks, why does it work? The graduate with a bachelor in engineering degree asks, how does it work? The graduate with a bachelor in accounting degree asks, how much is it going to cost? And the graduate with a bachelor of arts degree asks, would you like some fries with that burger? <laughs> I like that. On a more serious note, I don't want to be hitting too close to home with some of you, but, you know, stop and think about it here. It's like, you know, we're in a hurry to get knowledge, but the question for you is, what do you plan on doing with that degree once you get it? What's the ultimate game plan? Is the game plan to get the degree, or is the game plan to be used throughout the rest of your life? How many times do we hear young people, they go, well, I got a degree, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm working for $6, $7 an hour. And, and how much did that degree cost? Well, it cost my parents 100000 Well, great. So how do you plan on paying them back? What? 
I'm only making seven bucks an hour, man. How do you think I'm going to pay him back? Or, you know, what do you think? And it's like, well, wait a minute, what are you thinking? And then we go out and violate every biblical principle on finance to rob, borrow, and steal to be able to do that without ever thinking what the end result is going to be. We all need to be challenged. We need to understand that, you know what, knowledge is a good thing, but only coupled with godly wisdom that will be used by God to achieve God's purposes in our life. How ridiculous is it that we buy into the wisdom and the philosophies of men without ever thinking that maybe God has something to say about every subject in life? God warns us that the world's wisdom is foolishness to God and even keeps man from knowing God. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn back a couple of books. 1 Corinthians 1. I want you to see this very clearly. 1 Corinthians 1. Look at verse 18. And we see the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. We see, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing, what? Foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice that, for the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolishness. When you share with those who are perishing, and now who are perishing? All who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for their sins on the cross. The Bible says, whosoever will not believe in him shall perish, but whoever does believe in him will not perish. Those who are perishing are those who are dead in their sins. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. So everyone is perishing until they are met by Jesus Christ, and he changes their heart, and he gives them new life. So the bottom line is this, when you talk to somebody who is perishing on the road to hell, on the road to judgment, and you say, you need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he died on the cross in your place, they look at you and say, that is stupid. Do you really believe that someone could die on the cross for my sins? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. That is foolishness. Really? And why is that foolishness? Because, you see, if I was God, I would do it this way. Now, they don't say that part, if I was God, I'd do this way, but they imply that when they say that God's plan isn't good. So they, in turn, are saying, if I was God, or if I had the plan to do, this is the way I would do it, and my plan would consist of what? Doing stuff. And that's what the religions of the world are based on. Man comes up, the wisdom of man says, you know what, my plan is, is that we have to come up with a list of things that people do that we can control whether they do them or don't do them, that we can all make a lot of money through it, and, and we can make them feel guilty if they don't do it, and then we can always keep them guessing whether or not they do enough stuff so we always have them under our control. And, and to man, we come up with this great wisdom of how we would do it if we in, indeed were God. See, but we're not God, and God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. God does what he wants because he's God and we're not. All you and I are, are created beings, created in the image and likeness of God, but God is God and we are not. And, the, and, and as quickly as we can grasp onto that, the sooner we will begin to um, adjust our way of thinking to God's way of thinking. God is God, we are not. So it's his program and it's his plan, and that's how he chose to do it. Now the struggle is, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. The wisdom of man says, this is the way it should be done, and God says, I will destroy that nonsensical way of thinking, because it is rooted in pride and rebellion against me and my authority over human beings, and that is what is the root of all sin in life. God says to do it his way, man says I'm doing it my way, and we do it in every area you can think of, including how we think we should get to heaven. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you catch that? Do you understand what God's saying? I'm going to destroy the wisdom of man, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And I don't care if it makes sense to any man or not, because I will reveal exactly what my plan is, and you either submit to my plan, or you'll be destroyed, and your arrogance and your pride heart will lead you on a road to judgment before God, and you will spend an eternity separated from God in hell. 
That is the reality. And what is it rooted in? Ooh, some of us go, that's really harsh. It's harsh, but it's truth. Because we preach Christ and Him crucified. There is no other way through Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is all on Him or nothing. It's not a half program. I'll put a little bit over here. I'll put a little bit over here. I'll hedge my bets this way. No, it is Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the world we live in, it seems foolishness. Well, that's too easy, I hear people tell me. That's too easy. If it's so easy, then why don't you surrender your stubborn and prideful heart and ask Jesus Christ into your life? Well, it's too easy. Oh, no, it's not. It's the hardest thing that a rebellious and stubborn and prideful man ever has to do, and that's what? Submit to, submit to the will of God in their life. There's nothing easy about it at all, because man would rather have a to-do list than to submit themselves to the revealed will of God in their life, that it's Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him alone, and there's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. You see, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. God does what he does because he's God and that's what he wants to do. Listen to me. Because the world has turned from God, it has lost godly wisdom. Every increase in man's knowledge only magnifies the problem. Romans 3.18 tells us that there is no fear of God before their eyes, speaking of unbelievers. The world is filled with great knowledge, but with no fear of God, death, destruction awaits. There's a way that seems right to man. We reason, but its end is destruction. Why is death and destruction awaiting those who don't fear God? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It all starts there. Fearing God first, putting Him first, realizing our accountability. And then you know what? And then we have access to godly wisdom of how to apply the knowledge that we are gaining as we move along. Knowledge of increasing aging population. The world reasons because of the economic impact that it won't be long before we buy into euthanasia as an acceptable social practice. The world reasons, hey, after all, they led a good life. They're draining our economy. They're costing us a fortune. Hey, you know what? And they're suffering. They don't want to suffer. Let's put them to sleep. That's the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of this world. Why? Because we've got knowledge now. We don't know what to do with this knowledge. We're learning more and we've got more knowledge at our, at our disposal and we don't know what to do with it. So we begin to what? We begin to reason. Knowledge of the causes of sexual disease and pregnancy leads to such wisdom of this world as condom distribution to children and sex education that includes everything but abstinence. We reason that they're going to do it anyway, so let's just make it as safe as possible. As safe as possible to do that which is wrong before God? That can only be the wisdom of men. It certainly doesn't come from God. We reason that, well, it's just an alternative lifestyle. Let's accept it for what it is. And who are we to judge? And what does that have to do with anything? And we reason away sexual immorality. But that's not the revelation of God, is it? It's the reasoning of man. Increased knowledge produces such marvelous technologies as the computer and internets and things of that nature. And it's led to such wise applications as pornographic websites and, oh, the new thing, gambling over the Internet. Wow, what a wise use of technology. Knowledge that produces the ability to see into a mother's womb has led to such wise practices as the abortion of children with, quote, defects of some sort. Or now we can do it for gender selection. Oh, the wisdom, the, the knowledge of this world that leads to the wisdom of men. The reasoning of man is in conflict with the revelation of God. It always has been and always will be. Ethical question. If you knew a woman who was pregnant, who had eight kids already, three of whom were deaf, deaf, two blind, one mentally retarded, and she currently had syphilis, would you recommend that she has an abortion? Those are the kind of ethical questions, the dilemmas that we deal with. And the wisdom of man says things like, whoa, wow, that seems like an easy one. Does it? If you had chosen to abort, that child turned out to be Beethoven. Now, the question then is this. Would that decision to abort that child because he turned out to be Beethoven, is that what would have made it wrong? No. 
because all life has value in the sight of God. God has revealed to us the sanctity of human life. God has revealed that every person is created in the image and likeness of God. We need to take it a step further. No, it wouldn't be wrong just because he turned out to be Beethoven and was productive in our society, in our world. No, because every human being has value before God. That's what makes it wrong. That's what God reveals. And it doesn't matter how man reasons it away. I need to share a concern that lines up with this. And it has to do with the word study of what we're seeing here in James chapter 3. But in James chapter 3, the words that we're looking at as far as natural is concerned, there are things that are natural versus spiritual. The Greek words that are used for natural are words that we get our English word psychology derived from. And the reason I want to bring that up is because natural is in opposition to spiritual. Natural is sensual, it's fleshly, it's not on the ledger side of things that are right before God. The main idea seems to be that of man's fallen nature as opposed to the new nature given by God. There is a wisdom that gets its origin in man's nature totally apart from the Spirit of God. The reason I bring this up is because I'm very concerned at the movement that has been going on for some time now as far as trying to sneak in subtly the teachings of psychology as opposed to what the Word of God has to say. And I say this because this. Psychology is man-centered. That's why you always have people ask, well, how do you feel about it? See, how do you feel about it has now taken precedent over what does God say? How you feel, I could care less, and neither could God. What he says and what you do with what he says is how he will judge you. See, psychology is man-centered. Theology centers around God. We need to get back to what does God reveal and stop worrying about how does man reason. We already know how man reasons. Man reasons poorly. Man reasons wrongly. Man reasons with a sin nature because his nature is in opposition to a spiritual nature that only comes through a divine experience being born again being transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we know what the will of God is, that which we can know without any doubts whatsoever is revealed from God. We need to get back to what does God say and just throw away how do you feel? Because it really doesn't matter. And in many times, I'm going to be honest with you, how I feel about things is oftentimes in opposition to what God clearly reveals. And it's a question of whether I'll do what God reveals or run with my feelings. And I already know this about my feelings. They are deceptive. I mean, all you got to do is look back on your past and look into your life or even into your present and say, are you doing things based on feeling? If you are, is it leading you into trouble? It may not at the moment, but there's a way that seems right, but its end is destruction. I guarantee you that it will. If you go by what God reveals, you will never have to worry about the end being destruction because God will lead you in a proper direction. I came across a survey that was sent to me, and here's some of the highlights, if you can call this highlights. 7,441 Protestant ministers were asked these three questions. Do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact? 51% of Methodist ministers said no. 35% of Episcopalians said no. 30% of Presbyterians said no. 33% of American Baptists said no. 13% of American Lutherans said no. Do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? 60% of Methodists said no. 44% of Episcopalians said no. 49% of Presbyterians said no. 34% of American Baptists said no. 19% of American Lutherans said no. Do you believe that the scriptures are the inerrant word of God in faith, history, and secular matters? 87% of Methodist ministers said no. 95% of Episcopalians said no. 82% of Presbyterians say no. 67% of American Baptists said no. And 77% of American Lutherans said no. Let me just share this with you. The wisdom of man is foolishness to God. The reasoning of men is foolishness to the wisdom of God. God has revealed very clearly the answers to those three questions. And thank God that we are in a church that preaches the word of God that opens up the book and teaches it, not worrying about what people think, not worrying about what the denominational leaders have to say, but can have the freedom to pick up the Word of God and teach it as God has revealed it. 
There is no question on any of those facts. The Word of God reveals very clearly that Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead, that he was born of a virgin, that he suffered, he died on the cross in our place for those who would believe that he rose three days later. The Bible clearly teaches that the Word of God is the inherent, the inherent Word of God and that it is applicable for all times, for all men, for all situations. And that's what we teach. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And that's what the Word of God teaches and that's what the Word of God reveals. It is very, very disheartening, at, at, to say the least, to recognize and understand that we are living in a culture that has clearly gotten away from all of these truths. We need to understand that Jesus' greatest problems were with, quote, religious leaders who denied the very word of God himself. Their so-called wisdom is foolishness to God. The wisdom of the world. Well, I find contradictions. You know what? The only contradiction that I find is that your heart's not right before God. Because you're reasoning and you're trying to reason away the fact that you need to submit to the authority of God in your life. And that's really what it comes down to. Now, in contrast to the wisdom that's earthly, sensual, demonic, James describes a wisdom that's from above. Look at James 3.17. But the wisdom that's from above, there is a wisdom that comes from above. There's heavenly wisdom. It's a good gift, and every good gift comes from God. It's accessible to us. We've already learned that. James says if you lack wisdom, and since it's so, there isn't anybody here, including myself, that doesn't lack godly wisdom. He says, if you lack it and sense it so, you need to seek it from God. And he will give it to you generously without any reproach or criticism in the fact that you don't have it. He knows we don't have it, and that's why he wants us to acquire it and to turn to him and to pursue him and to get it from him. Lord, we got all this knowledge. What is the best way to use this that's pleasing in your sight? Acquire wisdom. As, as believers, we look to heaven for all of our needs. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. The Word of God is the wisdom of God. And in fact, it's the Word of God, the Scriptures that are able to make us wise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15. It's the Word of God that if we keep and to do, it is for your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all nations, Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6. The Bible says if we're going to be successful in life, we're not to go from the left or to the right, that we're not to stray away from the Word of God, but we are to be diligent to do all according to what is written in it so that your way will be prosperous and that you'll have much success. To be able to take the knowledge that God gives and to be able to apply it in practical ways is wisdom that comes from God. See, the origin of spiritual wisdom is God and God alone. Question for you. Are you struggling with something in your life? Where are you going for wisdom? If you're going anywhere else but the Word of God and godly counsel, and there's nothing wrong with biblical counsel if you're having problems. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. i got a problem with man-centered psychology, but I don't have a problem with biblically-based, God-centered theology. And if it's to get us on the right path, that's good stuff. Praise God, there's people out there that can show you in the Word of God why you're a mess and what you need to do as far as God is concerned to get out of the mess you're in. Then it's a question of will you be obedient and submit to it and do it. That's fine. That's good stuff. And that's what this wisdom that we're talking about is all about. Look at the, the contrast in operations. How do you know if you've got godly wisdom or man-centered wisdom? Wisdom that's natural, demonic, or earthly. Contrast in operations. Note he says, if you are using man's wisdom, God says you will find bitter jealousy and envy will exist. How do you know the difference between God's wisdom and man's wisdom? Bitter jealousy and envy. Do you have bitter jealousy and envy? Let me ask you a question. If somebody is promoted, are you genuinely happy for them, excited for them? If somebody has a burden in their life, will you, cast your, will you allow them to cast their burdens or cares upon you and that you can walk with them and take that burden? Or when somebody goes through a tough, tough time, are you glad? Hey, good. If so, that's not wisdom that comes from God. That's not revealed to you from God. That's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. It's fleshly. It's, hey, you know what? If I can't have it, you can't have it. Second thing, and that goes along with this, selfish ambition. You know what the cause of most problems in most churches are? Selfish ambition. And you know what selfish ambition is? It's a word that was used in, the, in, in, in Greek times for politicians. It was political. It was that I've got an agenda, and I need to try to generate as much people on my side to be able to promote my agenda. I'm going to go out, and I'm going to get votes. I'm going to get people to be in my corner. I'm going to get them to be in my camp. I'm going to promote myself and my agenda. And the more people I can get to be on my team, then the more political clout that I have so that somehow or another I can jam my agenda through, which may not even be God's agenda at all. So where there's confusion and jealousy and there's selfish ambition where it exists, God says that's not, that's not godly wisdom. That's not godly wisdom at all. Along goes with it, arrogance. Arrogance. 
boasting. Here's the way it works. If you got an agenda and you want to promote your agenda and you're going around ga gathering votes to promote your agenda, then typically what you have to do is you're going to have to boast about why they should do what you want them to do because of the track record that you have. And when you're boasting, you know what ends up coming? Deceit. Because no one's ever as good as they say they are. So what do you got to do? You got to start lying. You got to start lying to sell your position. And it all goes hand in hand. God says if where, where earthly wisdom exists, these things are evident. Jealousy, ambition, arrogance, deceit. Now on the other hand, and I almost feel like you got to take a, a shower after that. On the other hand, you got this good stuff that God says comes from heavenly wisdom. Notice, number one, gentleness. You know what gentleness is? It's meekness. You know what meekness is? Strength under control. I deal with a lot of guys who are strong. And one of the things that's really interesting is, is that you deal with professional athletes, and a lot of them have really strong grips. And so when I first meet them, the first thing I want to do is kind of lock in there real tight, you know, because you don't want them to think you're a pansy because it doesn't make for a good first impression. And, uh, you know, if you're going to develop a relationship, you don't want the guy going away going, man, that guy's a fish. I mean, it's just like, you know. So, <clears throat> so it can backfire, too, though. So it's like, and you got a guy, and he can break your hand. So you got to be careful. you got to make sure you're firm, but you're not trying to challenge his manhood because he could kill you, you know. <laughs> just break your hand just like that. See, and that's a perfect illustration of meekness or gentleness is strength under control. Think about Jesus. You want to be more like Jesus? How many times in his life did he demonstrate strength under control? He went to the cross voluntarily. He endured the pain. He despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. And that was our salvation for those who would trust in him. For his return to heaven and seat at the right hand of God. For the glory that would be his. For a name above every other name that is name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to, that, he's, that he's Lord to the glory of God. Jesus, he, he was strength under control. Do you think for a moment that Jesus was nailed to the cross by men? He went to the cross voluntarily. There was no man that ever had enough strength to nail Jesus Christ to a cross. In fact, he tried to tell Peter that in the garden. He said, look, if this wasn't the will of God, if this isn't the will of the Father, you don't think that in a minute we could have legions and legions of angels here? And Jesus didn't even need angels to protect him. Why? Because he's God in human flesh. And it was his very word that the universe came into existence. He spoke everything that we see into creation. We see the world and everything that God existed. How did he say? And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. All he had to say was, that's it. You miss it? That's it. And he didn't have to do that. See, no man could ever do to Jesus what men did to Jesus unless it was the will of God to save mankind. You see, gentleness is strength under control. See, you don't always have to get your way. You don't have to demand your rights. You can be strong and have that strength under control. Purity. That's where it all starts. Pure before God. Purity and peace. You know what's interesting is that the Bible never teaches that man is to have peace at all costs. But the Bible teaches that if man is pure first, then peace will follow. If it's the peace that God wants to see. See, we don't have to compromise that peace. We don't have to lay aside the truth of the word of God so that we're at peace with all men. We don't have to be politically correct because that's the thing to do and that's what politicians do because you know what? That's exactly what we learned about selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Oh, we want to be accepted by man? Then guess what? You're going to have to lay aside the revealed will of God because God says we're to be pleasing to God, not be pleasing to man. And if there's ever a conflict between the two, do what God asks you to do. See, that's the wisdom of God. It says, hey, you know what? I must obey God rather than man. See, but peace and, and, and to be reasonable. How many of us are unreasonable? How many of us are hard to sit down and talk to and reason according to heavenly reasoning, not man-centered reasoning? To be able to say, and I'm going to ask you something, here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road. When you're going through difficult times in life, when you are set in your ways, when you're convinced that you're right, and you're getting all the votes of people to make sure that they're on your side so that you got more people for you than against you and all that kind of stuff. The real test of godly, heavenly wisdom is this. If you had a person who would sit down with you and open the word of God and show you very clearly from the word of God where you are wrong and not right, are you willing to confess your sin before God, to throw out your position and adopt the position that's revealed by God? 
You see, godly wisdom helps us to use that knowledge that God gives us in very practical ways throughout our life. But man, I'll tell you what, pride's a tough thing to shake. How many times do you see people, they're just, they're just dug in their ways, and you can show them scripture after scripture, passage after passage that line up with each other, and they still go, but, 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 but I don't care. I don't care what it says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Really? Well, I believe some of the Bible, but not all the Bible. What part don't you believe? Oh, probably, let me guess, the part that you're violating right now. Is that a pretty good assumption? Well, yeah, you know, well, okay, great. Well, then just throw it all out. And then reason to yourself what's right. And the end is destruction. Mercy, good fruits, unwavering, sincere. Those are all the operations of godly wisdom. Unwavering. Listen to me. There are times in our life where we do not waver. If it is expressly revealed to us in the word of God, it is not negotiable. We cannot waver in those areas. We cannot throw away those positions that God holds very dearly and very clearly for the, for the, for the sake of political expediency. How many times do we see in our culture today politicians who are just selling themselves out, selling out whatever convictions they say that they held because the latest poll or the latest group has more clout than they thought and this is one of their planks and so we're going to have to adopt that and throw out everything that I believe to be true and everything I believe to be right. For what? For the sake of just getting elected for the purpose of having power and having money in my pocket. Man, what a tremendous accountability one day for leaders who have thrown out the revealed will of God and have sold out for the wisdom of men. We cannot be wavering in our position. Stand fast upon the word of God. It has not changed. It will not change. It will never change. The word of God lasts forever. If you don't know anything else in this life but what God's word says and the wisdom that God gives to live it, you don't need anything else. Sincere. Non-hypocritical. Without a mask. The word was used in Greek tragedies and Greek plays for those who wore masks and they would play a part. God is saying this. If you want to be more like Jesus, stop being a hypocrite. The wisdom of the world says blend in with the crowd that you're with. The wisdom of God says be sincere. Stop being a hypocrite. Stop just trying to suck up to your friends at school. Stop trying to please your people at your office. Stop trying to please your boss when it comes to just laying aside Christian convictions and values and the revealed will of God. God says, be sincere. The reason that the church or Christians don't make much impact in our culture is because we're a bunch of phonies who run around trying to please everybody and we wear a different mask depending on the group that we're in. Today we got on our church masks. Tomorrow we'll put on our business mask. Then we'll put on our school mask. Then we'll put on our, our athletic team mask. And then we'll just hide behind all the different masks that are available to us. And you know what? That is not wisdom that comes from God because God's wisdom says be sincere, be who you are, not be hypocritical, and take the masks and throw them away for good because Jesus never hid behind any mask. He was and is who he claimed to be. And the last thing is this. There's a contrast, as you can imagine, in origin. There's a contrast in operation. And obviously, there's going to be a, dra a drastic contrast or contrast in outcomes. Notice in verse 18 of James chapter 3. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The outcome of godly wisdom is that basically what we sow is what we're going to reap. And isn't that true? If you reap selfish ambition, if you reap, you know, bitter jealousy, if you reap arrogance, if you reap deceit, if you're a liar, guess what? Someday you're going to sow what you reap. If you're arrogant and you're obnoxious, the Bible says pride comes before the fall. If your selfish ambitions uh, lead you to go out and try to politic, you're going to end up in a position that you're not prepared for because God doesn't want you there and you're going to fall flat on your face. But you know what? If you're reaping gentleness and purity and peace and reasonableness and mercy and good fruits and you're unwavering in your love for the Lord and his word and you're sincere and not hypocritical, the Bible says that you will not inherit trouble, but you will inherit God's blessing. That it will not be a state of confusion in your life, but there will be one of peace. And you will not experience the heartache that comes from walking from God, but you will experience the joy of fellowship with him. My question for you is this. What state do you find your life in today? 
If there's confusion, if there's trouble, if there's heartache, you need to sit down and figure out what it is that's causing all of that in your life because you're reaping what you have sown. And it's time to confess our sin before God. And it's time to repent and to turn from it. It's time that we start living each day becoming more and more like Jesus because that's the road that God wants to take us from being a baby in Christ to a spiritually mature man or woman of God who when the world looks at it, they say, you know what, it's not hard for me to believe Jesus Christ because of the way that his people live their life. Father, thank you for this time. We just thank you for your word. We thank you that we have wisdom that, we're, that we have access to, that you tell us that if we seek wisdom, that if we lack wisdom, to seek it and to ask from you, who give generously and above reproach. And God, that's my prayer for all of us that are here, that we'll be people who seek wisdom, acquire wisdom, pursue wisdom, uh, more so than all the silver and gold and all the other ambitions that we have in life, but to seek godly wisdom so we know how to apply godly knowledge. And we just thank you and praise you as we apply these things in ways that are pleasing to you for the joy that we'll have, the peace that'll come, the contentment that'll be there, and the blessings that you bestow to those who walk in obedience with you. And we just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.